They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Perfect. Thank you. All right. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Good, good, good. All right. Okay. 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 Everybody all right? Okay. Um, Now, we uh, have a lot to do and not a lot of time to do it. Good thing is, it's a short passage today. We're going through the book of Acts um, for the rest of our lives. And we're in Acts chapter 2 right now. And there's been this development. There is the, 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 the spirit came down and there's these tongues and these signs. And Peter stands up. A crowd gathers because 120 people are in a room prophesying, speaking in tongues, languages that other people can hear. Um, and Peter preaches this gospel and it reverses sort of, he's showing them how God is reversing everything that has gone wrong in their history, in their past, and forgiving it and bringing them all together. Um, sort of a, a restoration of Israel, right? With with Jesus as their king, with the whole world now as their, as their holy land, uh, with, um, with their, the, the, the spirit of God now being their Torah, their law, and all of this. And so now we see in this passage um, sort of a, a description of what happens when, when Christ becomes the center of your existence. This is a passage that has been debated. It's been grabbed by both sides, liberal and conservative, to be like um, either, like I, I hear people preach it as sometimes like, it's like this sort of, communist manifesto or a socialist thing or whatever, or people twist and use the Bible all kinds of ways that they, that they want to. This is a, um, a, a sign of the kingdom of God is what is happening here. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to take this apart, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to break this into three parts. Let me get isolate sort of the first verse here, verse 42. It says, it says four things in particular. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to talk about that, to fellowship. We're going to talk about that word, what it means in Greek and Latin and what it meant then. We're going to talk about the breaking of bread and to prayer. And on prayer, I'm going to put this one back down because we're going to talk about prayer in like two weeks. I'll do a whole morning on prayer and I think maybe we'll try a couple different methods of prayer and maybe try to write a prayer ourselves and uh, spend the morning sort of thinking about this because I get a lot of questions about prayer. So we're going to do these three things today, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, um, and about what it means that they had everything in common. So let's talk about all of this. Let's pray first uh, and ask God to sort of be present with us, and then I'm going to talk about this weird drawing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that right now you would allow us to be here and present. There are a lot of things that are weighing heavy on the people in this room. And I ask that, that uh, we, would, we would affirm the difficulty of those things. And, but right now, I ask that you would help us to put them aside and be present here with you, with your people, as your people. Um, may we see each other. May we hear each other. Um, may we truly listen and truly speak words of life and truth into each other's ears. May we walk with each other through difficult times. May we celebrate with each other at beautiful times. And right now, I ask that we would be present and not distracted. I pray that I would speak your words, that that I would be your prophet somehow, and that you would speak through me. I pray that we would all collectively be the receivers of this ancient word. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Okay, so here's what this is about. A lot of people think the church came out of 
the Bible. What people do today is they gather, they read the Bible, and then try to figure out how to do church. Um, And they assume, naturally, if this is what we're doing, this is what they were doing, that the first church, they had the Bible, and they would read the Bible, and then they would do what it says and be a church. This is not at all a reality. So the first thing I'm going to talk about here is the teaching of the apostles, because the teaching of the apostles was the authoritative word that they leaned on. Um, the teaching of the apostles was the thing that they learned from Jesus. It is the words of Christ uh, lived out and embodied through the oral tradition of the apostles. Today, we have a low view of oral tradition. We play games like telephone to try and prove that when stuff passes from mouth to mouth, it gets perverted and distorted. Um, in the ancient world, it was not like this. Stuff wasn't necessarily written down until it had to be, as in when nobody else is talking about it, we're finally going to write it down and so we can set it aside and maybe come back to it another century from now. But in the ancient world, there were checks and balances on how oral tradition was carried and kept. And the teachings of Jesus were kept in the teachings of the apostles. And these things were very stringently taught to the people um, around them. Now, so again, a lot of people think the church came from the the reading of the Bible. This is physically impossible uh, because if you were here in September, you will remember this slide that I put up for us, um, which shows us the very first time in church history that we see an assembled canon of scripture. Every book of the Bible, as we now know it, put together. It uh, it comes from a letter from Athanasius on Easter morning um, in the year 367. This is the first time we see, oh, that's the Bible that he's talking about. Um, Which means for 300 years before Athanasius, there was no Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. And so how did they do what they did? How did they know what to do? How did they know what to believe? Well, first off, their reliance was on the Spirit of God, not the Bible. They believed that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was alive and present when they gathered. They believed the Spirit of God was with them, guiding them and teaching them. Okay? Um, So we have this. How did we get this? Well, a lot of it comes from the idea of the apostles' teaching because, okay, again, here's how people tend to also think it looks. The apostles' teaching, they wrote down the Bible, which led to the creeds. You know, last week we did the Nicene Creed, which is like the, the, sort of the first definitive statement of what Christians believe. It covers two areas and two areas only, Christology and Trinitarian theology, and that's it. And these are the things that Christians historically agreed upon and said, this is what it means to be a Christian. But these creeds did not come out of the Bible. This is putting things backwards. When we talk about how we receive the Bible and the, 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 the creeds that we have today and the things that we claim to believe, it starts with Jesus and it goes to the apostles. The apostles received the teachings of Christ. They followed him for three years. They learned everything about him. He was the embodiment of what we are supposed to be as human beings and as the presence of God in this world. And they followed him and they did everything they could to emulate him and to learn it all. They asked questions day after day after day and they gathered everything they needed to know. And when they were ready, God sends them out. And so the apostles, as they're planting churches, um, the next step after the apostles is what's called the apostolic fathers. The apostolic fathers are the people who knew the apostles and studied under the apostles in the same way that they studied under Jesus. And they received all of the oral tradition, the teachings of the apostles, because the words of the apostles were the authority in the church, because they were the words of Jesus. And so this is what they're trying to preserve. And a church was only considered a church in the ancient world if they could follow their teachings all the way back to the teachings of the apostle. Because remember, they didn't have the Bible. 
And so they had to follow it back. You can read this um, in St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, he writes this. He writes, those who wish to see the truth can observe in every church the tradition of the apostles made manifest in the whole world. We can enumerate those who were appointed bishops in the churches by the apostles and their successors down to our own day. This is a phrase called apostolic succession. That's what this is. Apostolic succession um, is how you knew that you were hearing the teachings of the apostles before they had the Bible. And so they're hearing the teachings passed down and passed down and passed down. Um, Eventually, the apostolic fathers would put together something called the rule of faith. This is all going somewhere, by the way, not just endlessly giving church history until today. Um, This gives us the rule of faith. The rule of faith, they weren't creeds. They were sort of like these loose, like loosey-goosey sort of statements of like, Here's what the apostles taught, like in like Cliff Notes form. And there were different sort of different um, sort of versions of this, but they all said the same things and they all sort of proclaimed the same things about Christology and about, about who God was, the formation, the, the Trinity, the Trinitarian thought. Um, and the rule of faith was something that was given to all the people in the church so that, that when they heard the Old Testament read, because the Old Testament was their Bible for the first 300 years of scripture, uh, for the first 300 years of the church. And so they're listening to the Old Testament and they're remembering the things the apostles taught and it's illuminating as they hear the Old Testament. It's illuminating everything that they receive. And at some points, the Arians rise up and the modalists rise up and, and people are trying to sort of add to the rule of faith. So they call this, like we talked about in September, they called this ecumenical council of Christians from all over the world, all of the bishops together in the line of apostolic succession. Now, you know what that word means. And they gathered together and they wrote the creeds, starting with the Nicene Creed and then six creeds after that. And sort of each creed sort of like expands a little bit of the thoughts of the Nicene Creed, but it starts with the Nicene Creed. And this is where sort of all of this started. Why is this at all important? Here's why this is important. Because you have a church and a church in the first century is receiving mail and the letters are coming. And some of the letters say, this is from Paul. Uh, It's turtles all the way down. There's that line again. Uh, it's it like the God is a turtle or God is whatever and there's multiple gods and there's all kinds of gods or everything is a God and all kinds of things are being thrown out there. How do we know these letters are from the people that we think they're from and how do we know what the right things are to think about and understand we have all these letters. What do we do? Well, good thing is we have the creeds and so we run these letters through the creeds and the letters of the apostles naturally rise to the top. And out of these, the ones who have apostolic authority are seen with authority in the church and are added to the canon, which brings about the Bible. And at some point in the mid-300s, in the middle of the fourth century, at some point you just look around and you realize all the churches have the same canon. There was no, there was no gathering of people that saying, let's throw this book out, throw this book out, throw this book out, add this one in and add this one in for political reasons. None of that is true. At some point, the Spirit of God is guiding these people to understand the authority of God in the teachings of the apostles. And the Bible comes out of the church. And so here's how apostolic teaching brings about the church, which brings about the creeds, which brings about the Bible. The whole point of me telling you all this is this. The early church believed the Spirit of God was guiding them, even without their Bible. They believed the Spirit of God was present and that the teachings of the apostles were foundational for their understanding of who they were in the world and what they were doing here. Because Jesus is the word of God. And I say this all the time, and it always shocks people again every time I see it. Jesus is the word of God, not the Bible. The Bible tells you Jesus is the word of God. It is the final word of what God is saying. And Jesus is the, the, the pristine, um, highest view of God in all of the Bible. 
When you look at all of the Bible, you look at everything through the lens of Christ. And Christ is himself the highest description of God in the Bible. So the Bible itself exists as a byproduct of a church submitting themselves to the teachings of Christ. The church was not created by the Bible. The church created the Bible out of the teachings of the apostles, which is why in Acts chapter 2, you see they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. The teachings of the apostles are paramount because they, they walked with Christ. This has always been sort of the focus of what we do. I want to teach you the words of the apostles. And then I want you to ponder these things and learn to live in a way that is Christ-like. Not trying to be right all the time. Not trying to be the most intellectual one in the room. But to be the most Christ-like one in the room. And this is how um, the Spirit of God will guide us into goodness and rightness. Someone can be very, very right and not Christ-like. Which makes them wrong. Okay, Christ-likeness is always the goal. So they gathered to do the teachings of the apostles, to listen to them and to speak them. And then it says, uh, as well as, and to the fellowship. So there's two words here, a Greek and Latin word that I want to talk about because the early church was divided into two camps. The Eastern spoke Latin, uh, I'm sorry, the Eastern spoke Greek and the Western spoke um, Latin. And so the first word, uh, the, the Greek word is the word koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. Good. Now, the Greek word, uh, I'm sorry, the Latin word is societas. Everyone, societas. Okay. Societas, obviously, the reason I want to point this one out is because it carries like the, the more easy to understand meaning of the word. They were a society. They were a group of people that were like-minded. They were sort of in a legal contract without all the paperwork, right? Like they were a people who were um, a bona fide consensual, uh, they were in a bona fide consensual agreement based upon mutual trust, upon faithfulness and allegiance to each other. And their lives were intertwined, 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 who knows? To, they, they were all put together. Their lives were combined. And they cared more for the community, the societas, than they did for the individual themselves, the soci, as they would call the members of the society. They decentered, each one decentered themselves and their own ideas, and instead centered the other. Um, and this, the form this took was fascinating. There were no documents, there were no papers, no signatures, no public officials, um, and the agreement lasted as long as each person remained of the same mind. Um, you read a lot in the scriptures about having one mind, having the same mind that Christ had. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Like, this was the, the language of the societas. This was the language of a people who considered themselves bound together by like-mindedness, by a, by a by an equal goal, um, in a sense that like they saw a future that they were all collectively working towards. Now remember, I always talk about the church as a people who come from the future, right? Because that's what the church is. It's a people who live right now in a way that everyone will live in the kingdom of God. That one day at resurrection, every knee bow, every tongue confess, like every, when Jesus is revealed as king, finally, there is a way in which the world will function. And the church is the people who choose to live that way now. And so we don't prop up things that will not exist in the kingdom. And we do, yes, prop up things that will exist in the kingdom. Um, and we live as a people that are supposed to be like a light in the world, a city on a hill, which cannot be hidden. And people look at us and they say, what are they doing? How does this work? And so the, the fellowship was a veritable garden of Eden. It was, it was a group of people who didn't view their own selves as more important than anyone else. And if somebody was in need, if somebody came home with this hospital bill that was huge and we hear about it and we look at what we have and we say, well, 
there's, I have this family heirloom and it's worth a lot. And I'm going to sell it and help provide for you. Because this thing matters not in the kingdom of God. What matters is you. You matter in the kingdom of God. And they look at you like, well, that's a priceless heirloom. And they look at you and they say, no, you are a priceless uh, gift from God that, 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 that belongs to me. And so I will sell this and use it for you. This has worked its way uh, into our community many, many, many times. And it's always this incredibly beautiful thing. A few months ago, we all collectively gave $19,000 to provide banks, uh, back surgery for somebody in the church. Like this is something that the church should do. Um, it has nothing to do with your picture of how the world's economy should flow, capitalism or, or socialism. Or, it has nothing to do with any of that. It's literally the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God does not trade in money and human currency. It trades in divine currency, which is grace, and mercy, and understanding that human beings made in the image of God and deserve to be served and taken care of. Okay? Sometimes this breaks down. And we have these letters in the scriptures that have been saved to show what happens when it breaks down. You have one particularly in the city of Thessalonica uh, where there were high status people who were entering into the church uh, and causing disruption. Uh, The letter goes like this. It says, when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive and they are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. Oftentimes you'll hear this verse quoted as like, aha, see, God has the same model of economy that America does. This is not that at all. Uh, In the ancient world, society, uh, in society, honor and status were supreme. It was an honor culture. What mattered the most was your honor. And working with your hands was dishonorable. If you're a craftsman today, we're like, ooh, that's that's honorable thing. It was not an honorable thing in the ancient world. To be a craftsman was low class, disrespected. To work with your hands, to be a servant, to be a farmer. What people wanted was a job where they worked with their mind. They were orators, or they were teachers, or they were rabbis, or they were like Paul, like the Pharisees, like anyone who worked with their mind and, and, and dealt in knowledge and understanding or wisdom or philosophy. These were the high-class people. And so people are coming into the church, and they see others serving with their hands, and they look around, and they say, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't do manual labor. I don't do low-class stuff. I'm an orator. I do this, and I do that, and this is all that I'm interested in, and so this is... This is where I want to serve. And so they're not serving. And Paul looks at him and he says, and he says, some of you I see are too good to serve like the rest. And then he says this. He says, if this is happening, don't associate with them in order that they may feel not revered. I put this in brackets because the actual NIV translates this as, as, um, as shameful. That's not a good translation at all. The, the, the word is like entropos, which means like not climbing. It means, it literally means like not revered. Like don't. Don't praise them for this. Normally, you would praise them because you want their praise. You, want, you lift up people with a lot of honor so that you maybe can get some grace and some honor from them as well. And they'll talk nice about you if you talk nice about them. Paul says, this is not what we're doing. Don't praise them. You want to praise somebody? Praise the people doing the grunt work. Praise the people doing the worst things. Praise the people doing the things that you just aren't interested in doing. Praise those people. And the other people who are used to getting all the praise will look at it and say, well, well, this is different. Like, where's my praise? Where's my, what, what do, how do I get that praise? Well, you get it by being a servant. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and, 
God will lift you up. When people act like this, Paul literally in Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. That is what he's talking about. The honor society, the honor culture, only doing the honorable thing in society's eyes. You know, here's the thing about Paul. Do you know why Paul was a tent maker? I think I talked about this before. Um, we have this letter from a guy named Dio Chrysostom in the first century who writes about a, um, a pretty crappy town called Tarsus. And he talks about this group of people who were the lowest of the low in the entirety of the ancient Roman Empire. They were the linen workers, the people who dealt in linen and made stuff out of linen. Paul is high society. Paul is a Pharisee, highest of the high, the most honor. They work with their minds, right? Unless they're stoning people, right? They work with their minds. Um, and so he's high society. When Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he suddenly leaves the profession of the Pharisees and he moves to Tarsus and he becomes a linen worker. Why? Because that was the worst thing you could possibly be. And Paul says, I've spent the rest of my life up here now that I've met Christ and I realized that he always existed up here and then moved in and slept in a stable and became a human being and moved down here instead of a palace. All I can do is be Christ-like. And so he gave up his Pharisee honor and he became a tent maker. He didn't do this so that he could make a little money on the side. He did this to basically bring ridicule upon himself by the wealthy and high status. And then when Paul, Paul was a well-known orator, like he could speak like nobody else, like golden tongue, right? Because um, we know this because in the book of Acts, he, he, he wows the philosophers and stuff. Yet when he goes to the city of Corinth, a high status city where orators were the most well-known and most respected people, Paul goes to the city and he gathers his church and he goes into the public square where he's going to preach. And all of his people are gathered around and they're like, everyone's going to see now that we are high status people because Paul's about to like just tear it up. Here we go, Paul. And Paul's like, my fellow Romans, my name is Paul and uh, I have a message for you. It's from God and it's uh, this and this. And Paul purposely does a bad job, like a terrible job. And they're really mad about it. And they write him letters and they're like, what are you doing? You're making us look bad. Like, this is terrible. Why are you doing this? He's like, because I don't care about your status. I do not, I'm not interested in your status. I'm not interested in planting your megachurch. I'm not interested in being the leader of your massive thing and wearing fancy shoes and making Instagram accounts. I'm just not interested in any of this. It has nothing to do with the, with the patterns of God's kingdom. It has everything to do with the patterns of this world. So take me off your high status list. This is what we have in the church. This is what they're doing. They're sharing everything in common and they're likening themselves to each other in ways that they just never had, ever. So, we have a third thing. They devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Again, we're gonna do prayer in a couple of weeks. The breaking of bread. Now, my wife will state firmly, and she told me the other night, and I loved it. She said, I mean, the, the dinner table is a sacred space. And she's right. We're, we're literally gathering and we are, we're all at the same eye level and, we're, and, we're, and we're, we're talking and pouring out information about our lives to each other and conversing and laughing and crying and telling stories while we intake the things that we actually need to stay alive. Like if you think about the exchange, pouring ourselves out while filling ourselves up, like this is a sacred space. This is what is happening. It's beautiful. And 
um, the ancient people agreed with that, that this is a beautiful thing to do. So the ancient people used to have, in the, in the Roman Empire, um, for, for like six or 700 years, they had this thing called the Aronos Feast. It was just this big feast that would be thrown by the Roman Empire. It was usually uh, very wealthy people that would fund this so that their honor would go up. Uh, this is one of the ways to get your honor up, was make big donations, right? Some people were known to make such big donations that they went bankrupt, so that they could gain honor. I don't got any money, but I got a lot of honor. And then, and then they would assume it would come back into their lives again. Um, and so these feasts were intended to build community and sort of um, back and forth in the Roman Empire, like get people talking and spending time together. Um, but here's the thing. Um, uh, 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 slaves weren't welcome there unless they were serving Barbarians, non-Greeks, that's you and I, we're barbarians, unless, unless you're Greek, unless you're from like Tarpon Springs. Um, the rest of us are barbarians. And then um, women were not allowed unless they were some sort of entertainment. This is like peak patriarchy in the first century, right? Um, and so basically what this was, was a way for high status Romans to, it's like a golf course, right? Like it's a way that they would sort of make deals. Deals are cut on the golf course away from... <laughs> People who understand the law and are like, that's illegal, stuff like that. Um, so this is how um, they bonded over the Aronos feast, right? So the Christians um, had a response to the Aronos feast, and they called it the Agape feast. And we have a lot of their ancient frescoes, uh, many of them um, in the catacombs from like the 3rd and 4th century. Um, and these, the pictures of these feasts... The whole reason that this is put up there, because it was sort of like a, like a, a response, like a rebuttal to the Aronos feast, the agape feast, the love feast. Um, it was sort of the same idea, but they did it with communion, and everybody was welcome. Um, it was, it was, it was for, for the rich and for the poor. The rich would bring expensive foods. The poor would oftentimes bring um, very little food or nothing at all if they didn't have anything. Um, and everyone was allowed to eat what was brought, no matter how little or how much they would contribute. And for the poor and the slaves, oftentimes the love feast, the agape feast, would be the only decent meal that they would eat the entire week. And they would fill up on all the protein that they could because they knew they probably weren't going to be eating very much the rest of the week. Imagine being a mother in the first century with a toddler and, and, and you can barely feed this child and you come to the, to the agape feast and every week she knows that her and her children are going to be fed because it is a community that is more invested in the future kingdom of God and pouring out for the the expression of the kingdom right here um, than for holding on and clutching tightly to all their expensive things that they own. And, and they would know that there's hope. And so for some, some of them, this was literally a lifeline that kept them alive and their families going for one more week. And it was one of the ways that the first century church broke down the barriers of race and gender and culture and all of these things. The, the agape feast was a symbol of the future kingdom Come now. We carry this on through communion. This is what communion is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the picture. Everyone is welcome to the table. There was a time in my life where I used to say, if you go back probably six or seven years ago in my sermons, and I, people bring this up, they, they listen to it, and they say, I noticed at the end of your sermon, you're inviting people to take communion um, if they're a follower of Christ, um, but not to if they're not a follower of Christ. And I noticed you don't do that anymore. I was like, no, I don't, I don't do that anymore because at some point I realized um, uh, this is not my body. This is 
Christ's body, and it's not mine to decide who gets to take part in it and who doesn't. It was broken and poured out for everyone, and I've seen people who, who did not believe in Christ sit here for years and then suddenly stand up and take communion, and I could see on their face that it was somehow efficacious, that it, it, it somehow did something and connected, and now they are followers of Christ. And so the mystery of it all, we can't stifle it by saying, no, you don't get to take communion. You are welcome to the table to take communion with us. We're not doing it yet. I'm still going. I got time. I got stuff to do. Um, so in this, in this meal, they were, they were showing the world around them what the future looks like, what a human being is supposed to look like, what life is supposed to look like here on earth. Irenaeus believed um, that the only thing corrupt in creation is that human beings lost their likeness to God. That is the only thing that he can point out and say, this is really what went wrong. Human beings like their, lost their likeness to God, he argued. Um, let's go a little farther with Irenaeus here. Let's go back to him. He says, he says, for the glory of God is the human person fully alive. I want to pause there for a second before reading the second half of this. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. If you want to see the glory of God in the mind of, of Irenaeus, it is it is a human being, restored, reconciled, filled with joy, welcomed at the table, filled and given purpose and hope. And when you see a human being who has been brought back and restored to the glory that they were meant to be in, that is when you see the glory of God truly alive in this world. And it is, in his mind, the only place you can see it. Because we are the body of Christ. And when we look at human beings that are gathered as the church, as the body of Christ, we should see what God is like. Which means, he continues, he says, and life consists in beholding God. And how are you going to behold God unless you yourself are taking part in the restoration of these people? If you, if you are not in the business of restoring and reconciling people to God and giving them a seat at the table and making space for them, then what are you even doing? You will not see the glory of God. You will see the religion of human beings. You will not see the glory of God. Um, and then there's this interesting passage that you see for the rest of it here. I'm going to read verse 44 through 47. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes, <clears throat> and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, first thing I want to say about this. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is prescriptive. I think this is descriptive, and here's what I mean. I don't think, I see a lot of churches that are like, okay, read Acts chapter 2, uh, 45 to 47, and and here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do all those things, and we're going to do our best to do these things, but then you're just doing things. You're you're practicing religion. You're doing things with your hand. Um, That's prescription. That's like, hey, church, do this if you want to be like a Christian church. Instead, what we find here is that when Jesus becomes the center of anything, and when the Holy Spirit is guiding you, this is a natural outpouring. This is a natural flow that happens, and it's symptomatic. If this is not you, if you are the kind of person that holds tightly and your arms are wrapped around everything that you own, and you are building an empire of your own and hoping people recognize you in this world, then you're missing it. You're not grasping what it means to have Christ on the throne, and you're an idolater. All of this is supposed to point to King Jesus, and that's it. 
Um, and there, okay, so this was a feature of the early church. And there's a lot of expressions of sort of the common things today. Um, and I think that it's, it's hard to sort of put this into context because they were living in sort of these buildings and structures that had like these apartments and like a central courtyard. So they were very much like living in sort of a communal existence as a society themselves together. Um, and, and our culture is like, we don't really live this way anymore. I see people do it once in a while. I know people in this church, there, there, there's been like two or three different communes uh, in Watermark at different points in our history of people that have decided to live together and sometimes it's beautiful and, and, and sometimes it just doesn't go well. Um, but that's life, that's human beings and people are trying to figure this out. One of the ways that this expression works is actually overlooked a lot. It is, it is this space, this property is one of our common held things. It's not my building, it's not the building of the governing board or the elders, it's not the denomination, but it is yours, it is ours and we all come together. Some give more a lot more, and some give very little, and some don't give any at all, but we com- collectively and communally benefit from this. And by the way, if you're the kind of person who gives a lot, hopefully you know, and hopefully I've communicated this, that like, I don't know, and the elders don't know, and nobody on our staff knows how much you give or don't give, and, and we're not concerned because this is not about status and power. This is about the Holy Spirit leading you to hopefully be obedient and give whatever you think is right to give. Um, and I don't know. The only person who knows is our treasurer, and I've never met her. She doesn't come to church here. She's a virtual treasurer somewhere else in the world. And she does all the paperwork. And so none of us know. And so if you feel what you're doing is really impressive, I hope you're impressed with yourself because nobody else knows. Um, but, and also if you're not giving. Like, I don't know. Like, this is you. This is all up to you. But this here is our communal space. This is about all who come benefiting from the Sunday morning shared worship experience and teaching um, through the intimate conversations at our midweek gatherings, through the multiple nights throughout the week when alcoholics are coming and gathering together to look each other in the eye and admit their brokenness and try to claw their way forward into health again. Um, For all the musicians who come and practice here throughout the week, for the music that is recorded and put out, like this is our communal space to do things that we see lead this world towards the kingdom of God. And that's what we're doing. This is not the end all of it. This is not a church. We are a church. Wherever we are gathering, we are a church. This is a building that we collectively share. This is not a church. It's a building with a church-shaped roof, apparently. But this is not a church. We are a church. This is a building that we collectively use for whatever we can for the purpose of spreading the kingdom. It is our collective life together. Uh, This space... um, It's a physical manifestation of our desire for the rest of the world. And our hope is that this communal space and the things that happen here will infect the rest of our our lives together, that they will work their way into the rest of our lives, Um, and that more and more of our lives will begin to become common space for the hurting world, that we will begin to open up um, not just the communal space that we own together, but, but, but our living rooms to each other, that more and more of our lives would become communal spaces, our living rooms, our spare bedrooms, our dining room tables, um, to those in search of a better king and a better way forward, to those who have come to the conclusion that, oh, human kings and presidents and prime ministers, they're doing a terrible job because they were never meant to rule over you. Jesus was, and that's it. And so they're like, I, I, I need something new. I need a new kingdom. I need a new community and a new king. Welcome to the church. This is what we are trying to do. This is our goal. And, 
And it's not just the things that we own that should be the communal things. It's not just the stuff our hands have access to, but also our minds and our words and our time and our talents and our abilities, our intellectual ideas, our very lives. And the only kind of growth that actually matters in any church at all is not numerical. The only kind of growth that actually matters is, I'll put this in the words of Augustine, uh, that, that two people would have roots that, that grow so intertwined that at some point they realize they are not two people, they are one person. And that is the goal of the church, that our roots will become so intertwined that we can never separate them without really killing the rest of it. Like that our lives, our roots would grow so deep and so intertwined in each other's lives that, that we would give birth, like we would, a family would enter in and, and we would dedicate their children that they give birth to, that we would bury their parents, that we would help raise their kids and marry these kids, that they would meet their spouse here, that we would live life together, marry and bury and celebrate and mourn and all of it in community, that our roots would grow so intertwined that it becomes un- unconceivable that we could ever separate them. That is the church, a society of people who understand that the body of Christ is of paramount importance in this world, that the body of Christ tells the story to the world of crucifixion over and over and over. This is what I mean when I say we are a cruciform people. When the world looks at us, they should see the cross. The body of Christ being broken for the world around us for salvation and healing and the blood of Christ being broken and poured out for us and that we would make space at the table, yes, for everyone and that people would enter in and receive hope and counsel and love and that when we gather, we would would teach again, proclaim the words of the apostles that that we would pray with everything that we have, that we would break bread and that we would fellowship not, not like a fellowship hall and a podluck, that we would be a society. Do you know the early church actually held courts on their own? They rejected the public courts and they got together and they held their own courts and they made rulings and they lived by them and they followed them. Did you know they considered themselves a surrogate family and a surrogate government? They were a unique new people in this world. And somehow, when you look at the church today, it's sort of like sometimes it's an arm of, of government, sometimes it's this arm of military, sometimes it's just this, it's this nebulous thing and nobody even knows what it is anymore. It's the society of the kingdom of God. Many people that see themselves as one, that don't look the same and don't think the same. That's why the church needs diversity, and people from everywhere. Right now, why why don't we celebrate this through taking communion together? Our communion service, you guys can take the elements uh, and spread around the room. We take communion every single week. It is the great unifier because at the end of the day and everything we disagree with, everything we agree with, um, when you come to the table and there's there's broken bread and there's poured out wine and it is there and you look at it, every Christian, whether they're Baptist, Episcopal, Anglican, Catholic, um, Eastern Orthodox, we all look at the communion table as, yes, this is essential. I will take communion with you. And so we come to the table, and whatever we bring to it, we all receive the same thing. If you consider yourself like a, like a saint, like a spiritual saint, and you've studied doctrines and you know everything, or if you consider yourself like you just walked in the, in the door and you just heard this morning for the first time that there is a king, and his name is, is Jesus, and you come to the table, both of you, neither of you are receiving any more or any less of the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. The body of Christ has been broken and poured out for you. 
every single one of you, for your healing and for your salvation. Our community servers can come, gather around the room. Um, and so this is a time when we take some time and spend some time in prayer and repentance. If you need to talk to somebody, confess to somebody. If you need prayer, I'll be up here. I'll pray with you. We'll have some, a member of the prayer team up here to pray with you as well. Or, or, and if you need prayer also in the back room back there, um, there'll be the people there to pray with you. But uh, take your time. Take this seriously. Contemplate your life and find out if you are the center of it or if God is the center of it. And let's ponder all of this now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us forward. Ground us in the things of you. Allow us to become so intertwined with each other that nothing else really matters but the flourishing of human beings and their reconciliation to you, Father. Thank you.